Hello, this is the Bitcoin Dad, and this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod. Today's episode got a little long. Chris and I wanted to devote a lot of time to talking to people about how not to panic during your first bear market crash and general everything in crypto slash Bitcoin losing its mind. So we spent a lot of time on that. That was our education section, but it got quite long, so we broke it out into a separate episode. So if you hear references to it or the episode feels incomplete, it's because we chopped a big section of it off and made a separate episode. I hope you enjoy it, and please stay safe out there. Gary Gensler is very concerned that crypto exchanges are trading against their customers. This guy, uh, he comes up on the show from time to time because he runs the SEC right now. The Securities and Exchange Commission. He also taught the MIT blockchain course, which I've recommended that our viewers watch in a previous episode. He's a complicated character, this guy, this, this Gary. And uh, he's making, uh, it's both outrageous, but self-evident too. He's claiming that essentially exchanges are front-running their customers. But of course they are. Which is completely obvious if you look at the price action on the order books of Coinbase, Kraken, Binance, Bitfinex. All of these exchanges are very hostile to their customers' interests. They always have been. So water, still wet. (laughs) This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, episode 15, recorded on Friday, May 13th, 2022. And I'm your Bitcoin Dad, here with me, Chris. Yes, that's Chris. I'm going to do it this time. Me. Hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome back in. What a week. What What a a week week indeed. Now, if you haven't been paying attention and you wonder why we sound slightly on edge, well, are we on edge? I think a lot of people are on edge. I guess we're on edge in the sense that we don't know how long and how far this is going to go, but we have a sense it's going to go long and it's going to go far. So I'm on edge in that way. Like, Wait, we need to put in the obligatory joke. Uh Uh-huh. Bitcoin is dead. Oh, right. Yeah. Podcast is over. (sighs) Yeah. Bitcoin died this week, guys. Sorry. Sorry. Last episode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's what I was told on Twitter. So (laughs) yeah, a lot of people have told me that Bitcoin is dead. Yeah. I've literally been told that it's going to go to zero and that it's it's dead. But you know, I, uh, I've been told that uh, more times than I can count. I'd love to buy Bitcoin at zero. Uh, Oh my, really even starting now, which is the twenties, Anywhere from here, it just feels like an absolutely phenomenal once-in-a-lifetime price. It may come down to this area again, but that's how it feels. So I actually am not I'm not upset that the price is down, but I do know that bear markets can be really rough for people. And so there's that sort of that. And then this last particular week, I think it was probably the worst, the roughest of it. And so we're just kind of coming off of that. To be clear, what's happened is there have been sort of two economic phenomena happening simultaneously, one of which just blew up last week. The first thing is, in general, the entire global financial market is just trending down this year. And there are some reasons for that that might not be apparent to people who don't pay a lot of attention to financial news, and we can get into those. But specifically, the Terra Luna crypto project blew up. And we've been talking about this for a while. We've, we basically concluded that it was going to blow up sometime, but it just happened to be last week. Yeah. And like you said in, in last week's episode, the UST portion, the Terra portion, the stablecoin, it's one of those things where when it depegs, it depegs hard. And that's what we saw. You know, in, in, in basically 24 hours, we saw this thing go to just absolutely worth nothing. Uh, same with Luna. 
the currency that backed it. And it, this is one of those situations that is really, really amplified by the fact that it already happened in a bear market. Things were already trending down. But on top of that, because we were in a market that is down overall, something that's becoming more and more common is that people cashed out of their crypto holding and stored those proceeds in stablecoin with the intention to buy back into the market when it starts coming up again, hopefully increasing the size of their bag. And if that stablecoin turns out to be worth nothing, then you really took a hard loss because you, you ran to safety and then safety turned out to be a lie. Yeah. But before we get into this, mm -hmm. let's just talk about what our goal is here. Because Chris and I have lived through bear markets and your first bear market is really rough. I was telling Chris, the bear market, the crypto winter, my first crypto winter was happening and I was actually walking through the snow in the dark and it was negative 20. I'm not kidding. You know, it was cold. I really a real in. winter. <laughs> I leaned into that crypto winter. Yeah. So this crypto winter feels very mild by comparison. But I understand that if it's your first big crash, it can be upsetting. So we're going to provide some thoughts, some strategies and how we handle it and don't get bummed out and don't make emotional decisions. So what we're going to talk about today is just generally economics. We're just going to say briefly, why are all markets down? And this kind of plays into what happened with the crypto markets. Then we're going to cover tokenomics. We're going to talk about how and why Luna exploded and why did that result in Bitcoin going down and all of basically all of the crypto market going down. And we're also going to touch on stablecoins because the UST Terra project was a stablecoin. Where did this idea come from? How do stablecoins work? Can stablecoins work? Then we're just going to touch, just touch lightly on energy. There is some positive energy news, but it's it's goofy. It comes from Europe. So that's kind of a theme, Europe doing goofy stuff. And then we'll cover some corrections and our boosts. Yeah. So to begin with economics, you probably have noticed that this year, all financial markets are trending down. Netflix, which has been this high-flying tech stock, lost a lot of value. Suddenly everyone realized that, hey, Netflix, uh, they spend a lot of money getting customers and they don't actually seem to make any money. Head scratcher there. And that's kind of been the theme for a lot of big companies losing a huge amount of value. So what's going on there? Why is it that for 10 years, investors didn't care if companies made money or not? They were just buying the most hypey, most pumpy companies. But now suddenly everyone cares about your fundamentals. Everyone cares about your cash flows. Everyone cares about your profits. And all of these much hyped tech stocks are selling off. Yeah, I think if you're casually watching, you might feel like it really feels like this kicked off at the beginning of 2021. You know, it felt like all of a sudden the market turned on a dime and all of a sudden all these fundamentals mattered. You saw crazy valuations start to dry up in the middle of the deal. Like we're watching this with Twitter right now. It's becoming worth less as Elon sorts out if he's going to buy the thing or not. I know. That's a great story. And who knows? I mean, it could even be the end of the Elon. Sorry, Elon. I think it's Elon because it wasn't the leader of Mars named Elon in that book. You know, there's like a whole connection. Like there's a book written that had a leader of Mars named Elon. Oh, that's actually how his parents named him? I believe so. Yeah. Or well, that is bizarre. Or it's all some sort of globalist plan, man. <laughs> I know this financial panic. It was too perfect. It had to be an inside job. <laughs> Give got, me a break. You got my reference. Give me a break. <laughs> you got my reference. Yeah. So the beginning of the year, it felt like all of a sudden things changed on a dime. Like there wasn't like all of this money, this endless amount of money. And Chris has nailed it. What changed is credit markets. So as 
regular retail people, we tend to look, when we think financial market, we think stock market. We think S&P 500, we think NASDAQ, but stocks, these are equities, okay? These are, you, uh, you buy a share in a company and you basically are saying when you buy that share, I recognize that this share could go down a lot. It could go to zero, but I am willing to take that risk because I'm going to give my money to this company and I think that they are good at business and they will make more money with my money. And I will participate in that upside by buying this share and having exposure to this company's business in the future. Well, what's the company doing when it sells shares? It's raising money. And another way to raise money is by issuing debt in the form of bonds or getting a bank loan. And actually, most serious financial professionals would agree that credit markets, the market for debt, the conditions around issuing debt and redeeming debt and creating new loans and issuing new bonds and paying them back, these credit markets are actually the dog and the equity markets are just the tail. The real meat of the economy is in this creation of credit. And what's happened in the past couple months is that the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, has gotten very concerned about inflation. And so they have been raising the prime interest rate. This is the, there are several main interest rates. These are generally the interest rates paid on U.S. government debt. And the Federal Reserve controls these interest rate markets by basically buying this debt with money they print out of thin air. And they can essentially fix the interest rate on the U.S. Treasury three-year note, the U.S. Treasury one-year bond, the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year. They can control the interest rate paid on these debt instruments by buying them at any price because they're not price sensitive. They have infinite money. And by buying and selling these instruments, they can actually fix the interest rate that is paid on them. And they've been letting that interest rate increase from around 0% to around 0.75% today. And an, incre an increase from 0% to anything is a massive increase. So it's essentially, if I could make a simplistic comparison, it's a dramatic increase in the cost of money. Correct. And so for the past 10 years, money has essentially been free. The interest rates that most corporations and even some people were paying on their debt were were negative. The interest rate was below inflation. That means you're literally getting purchasing power by taking out debt. And as a result, there's a lot of short-term ways you can make money by taking out cheap debt. But a lot of those strategies don't work when interest rate goes up. When the interest rate goes up and now debt costs something, you better be spending that money on something very productive, very clever, very thoughtful. And that wasn't what people were doing when interest rates were super low. And so as interest rates increase, a lot of bad debt has to be retired, which means a lot of companies have to finally realize losses. They can no longer just get cheap money to continue operating. They have to cut their operations. And this hurts the equity price. Right. And you see a knock-on effect of this too. And if you go back in time and you go to something like tradingview.com and you look at the S&P 500, you can really see this take off during the pandemic. You can actually chart it perfectly with the pandemic and you'll see that assets just start going up and up and up as money begins to just flow like crazy. And so that also influenced the price of the crypto market. Yeah, completely. So we just covered this broad economic picture because not everyone follows it every day. And if you're scratching your head as to why all the markets seem down, your retirement account seems to be going down, this, is, this was inevitable. These drawdowns would have happened in the past in, say, the March 2020 sell-off, but they were reversed by easy 
monetary policy and credit creation, which are were government policies that really stimulated asset prices, but they also created inflation. And now that inflation is persistent and high, these institutions are trying to backpedal quickly. And the victim of that backpedaling is going to be financial markets. So I think it's very reasonable to expect financial markets to trend downwards for a prolonged period, probably until things get so bad that the Federal Reserve has to change course again and start stimulating. So I think we're in for a very volatile period. And if this is stressing you out, I honestly, I don't know what to do. I think that it's important that we all live within our means if possible and try not to take excessive financial risk because that can have unforeseen consequences when market conditions change. And so you have a situation where companies that provide real value or assets that have strong fundamentals are down. Bitcoin's technicals haven't changed. In fact, the difficulty rate just went up because there's so many people mining, right? In fact, it's scheduled to go up again in uh, just a couple of weeks. Some aspects of the Bitcoin network are stronger than ever. So the fundamentals of Bitcoin are in great shape, just like the fundamentals of, say, maybe Tesla or a piece of real estate. Those fundamentals are still the same. They haven't changed, but the market conditions around them have changed dramatically in like a way that fundamentally reprices money. I take issue with the Tesla example. I thought you might. I thought you oh, might. You were, you were baiting me. I, it's just because it's been such a good performing stock recently. Right. Until now. But, and, and Tesla is a great example of how messing around with credit markets makes crazy companies look really attractive because Tesla's never made any money. I mean, Tesla, all the money they've made has come from either selling Bitcoin or selling renewable energy credits that they were given by the government. And there wasn't a scientific study that said, how clean is our Tesla cars? How much emissions are they offsetting? It was a political process, and it was probably mispriced because, as we've said previously, digging up lithium to make batteries is not a clean process. And you know, Teslas are made out of plastic, which is essentially you know, solid oil byproduct. So there's a lot of petrochemicals in Teslas. They just don't burn petrochemicals as they drive, right. they, they get energy via a grid. So what matters is the source, which is the same for Bitcoin mining, right? It's like it's a Tesla drives as clean as the source that powers it, just like a Bitcoin miner is just as clean as the source that powers it. And like a Tesla replaces a gas burning car, maybe a Bitcoin miner replaces a gas burning US dollar. Because at the end of the day, if you talk to people who think that the reason the dollar is value is because the U.S. will blow up anyone who threatens that value, well, the mechanism to blow up any challengers to the dollar is a military that runs on fossil fuels. I, I mean, you could argue it's a, a form of proof of work. <laughs> it, it's proof of force is yeah, what that's, it is. That's what it is. It's proof of force. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, Gaddafi and others have learned. But that's not why we're down today. We're down today because of these macro conditions. And Bitcoin, of course, acts and functions as the canary in the coal mine here. Um, and it responds hard. And re it responds quickly. And that's because Bitcoin is not easy to regulate because Bitcoin is a protocol. So even if major exchanges got legal orders that they had to stop trading securities, if someone wanted to, they could just spin up a computer, spin up a server, and have a Bitcoin exchange on that server. Now, would they be able to plug that into the U.S. banking system? No, but they could, they could exchange Bitcoin for other things, for other digital assets or whatever. Well, there's also a pretty healthy peer-to-peer uh, -peer market where 
the individuals that are making the transaction decide what external payment method and system they want to use to trade Bitcoin. Right. So peer-to-peer markets like HODL HODL, which is available outside of the U.S., or BISC, which is available anywhere. These are peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchanges. And so you can exchange Bitcoin for other things without an intermediary. And that's something that you just can't do with stocks or bonds or even dollars, really, because you can exchange physical dollars, but you can't exchange digital dollars without an intermediary like Cash App or Strike or someone like that. They could shut down all exchanges somehow, right? Somehow a world government could be formed overnight and their first decree could be that all Bitcoin exchanges must be shut down. It doesn't stop the protocol and it doesn't stop peer-to-peer transactions. We could definitely trade peer-to-peer. Of course, the price might be low, but we could definitely do it. Then again, the inconvenience of it might drive the price up. (laughs) Talk about real scarcity. (laughs) This guy, he's thinking about liquidity. And that brings us to tokenomics. Yeah, let's get there. This is, woof. This is really why in the crypto world, it was a really rambunctious ride. In a lot of ways, the overall market lost a lot more money, like, you know, five, six hundred billion dollars more than the crypto market did. But our ride was wild. And I think that 40 million, 40 billion dollars of paper crypto value was destroyed in this crash over the past week, which is a lot. 40 billion, which is a lot for a, a small market. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's nothing, and it's for some people, it was their entire life savings. So I don't mean to make light of it. I just mean in in terms of like the te- just the tech sector alone lost a trillion dollars. No, oh, that is true. I think that really puts into perspective how small crypto is, how small Bitcoin is. Right, right. So when you hear people hyperventilating about crypto, a contagion that's going to take down the traditional markets, it's just silly. It's just silly. Not this cycle, guys, but maybe next cycle. (laughs) We can only hope. Let's hope we get there. (laughs) That'd be a great problem to have. That would be great. Chris's node crashes and the NASDAQ sells off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That'd be great power. Yeah, sure. I actually would hate that. Talk about a nightmare. So what happened was Chris and I have been discussing the Algo coin Luna. So there is a class of crypto assets called stable coins. And these are, they're similar in terms of execution to Ethereum or Bitcoin, because these are assets that can move across an, uh, a public blockchain like Bitcoin. There is, there are stable coins on Bitcoin. This is called the Omni layer, I think, the Omni protocol. Boy, I have very little familiarity with that. I know. But you, I kept, am- you kept pure. You stuck to Bitcoin. Well, because... <sighs> You know, it wasn't really until uh, I, I, I saw it from the trader's perspective and from people outside the country that stable coins clicked for me. Didn't really have a use for them. If I needed fiat, I would just use cash. Right. That's very, very first world. Very first world of me. Exactly. Then having, having more and more interactions with free software developers who are outside the United States, some of them are outside the Western banking system. I really then got a new appreciation for stablecoins for them. And then I started during the pandemic, I started hearing from listeners who became day traders during the pandemic. I love all of you out there if you're listening. And they really kind of explained to me how they use stablecoins from a trader's perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. So stablecoins are designed to hold a stable fiat value. So there are dollar stablecoins, euro stablecoins, yen stablecoins. But actually, the only sizable denomination of stablecoins is in dollars because crypto kind of lays bare the financial realities of the world. 
And the reality is the world's currency is dollars. Everything else is a layer on top of the dollar. So if you can have a dollar versus any other currency, 99% of the time you just want a dollar. And so most crypto stable coins are dollar denominated. Yeah. And like I said earlier, in a bear market, they became very, very popular because you could say if you saw where the macro picture was going, because like you and I were, we've been expecting this crash for months. Um, so if someone was expecting this crash, they would bail all out into a stable coin. And so maybe they bail out at 45,000, right? And then Bitcoin, let's say it goes all the way down to 22,000 or something. And then and when it's starting to come up, you know, it's starting to get 23, 24, 25, 26. Then they buy, they go all back in and they convert those stable coins back to Bitcoin. And because they've never left the crypto ecosystem, it's very fast. It's immediate liquidity. They don't have to wait seven days for an ACH transfer to clear. So there's some serious advantages there. Right. And they were probably also lured into Terra. UST, because if you bought Terra and you parked it in the Anchor protocol, they would give you 20%, 19.5% return on just leaving your Terra there. And so you just sat there earning 20%. Oh my God, what, a, what an interest rate. And actually, that was the first clue. Yeah, that was the real red flag, right? 20% interest rates do not exist in the real world because think of a business that had to finance itself at 20%. It would be impossible. You'd be unable to make your debt payments so quickly. Yeah, and the other thing in here, uh, on the Luna side, right, so you got Terra, which is the stablecoin, and then Luna, which initially was the algo asset that backed it up, you would stake Luna. So you would stake Luna, and you, you would lock up Terra at Anchor. So on both ends of the ecosystem, you basically had your money locked up into doing something. And this sort of gets back to why proof of stake, which is the consensus system in opposition to proof of work. Proof of work means doing hard computational work, turning energy and expensive equipment into hashes that can then find the next block. This is the way that Bitcoin works and proof of work, it works. It's hard to subvert. It's never been defeated. It provides incredible security. And it requires a constant investment into gear and infrastructure around it to maintain your place in the network. Which means that proof of work is a dynamic system. There are no kings or queens or lords. There is just people who invest in mining, and then over time they become less competitive, and then they die, and new miners come. They're commodity producers. They have no power. And we have seen this cycle play out over and over and over again. 13 years ago, there was an entirely different set of top miners than we have today, and we've seen multiple cycles of this because, as you can imagine, they invest in a set amount of hardware. Difficulty rate goes up. They can't just replace all of their hardware, but somebody new comes on. They've got newer gear. They've got a more competitive hash rate. It is a constant battle to maintain that position. And that matters. That really, really matters because that, that determines that that forces people to actually have to continue to fight for that, to invest, to make things better. And that makes the security of the network better. Like it has all these knock-on effects that are, are great. Whereas proof of stake is if you own a certain number of tokens, you can stake those and you get a share of all new token issuance forever. So that's basically called an oligarchy or aristocracy. I like oligarchy because I think it clicks with people because that's what it is. You get rich once, you're set forever. And if you were if you were benefit if you benefited from like the pre-mine distribution, then maybe you got lots and lots and lots of these tokens before it's even available to the public. And so there's uh, this is very common in these blockchains. Same for Luna and Terra. It was same thing there, right? And that also adds sort of this built-in group of people who, when the blockchain launches, they're already rich. 
They can stake. They always get to make money. They always get to be involved in the consensus mechanism. But what's really going on with Terra and Luna? Because as Chris and I have pointed out recently, algo coins don't work. Algorithmic stable coins don't work. They're like alchemy. They, they, just, they just don't make sense. It would be great if I could turn lead into gold, but it's not possible. So maybe I should stop trying. It's kind of a waste of time. So why exactly did Do Quan, the founder of Terraform Labs, who's a serial altcoiner, actually Terra Luna is his second altcoin. Which we only learned after the, all of this went down because, what was it, Coindesk or somebody decided not to reveal the fact that he was involved in a previous failed attempt stablecoin under another name? Rick Sanchez. Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Well, I think we know why Coindesk didn't reveal that. It's because the way that Terra Luna and other altcoin projects survive is via marketing. And so they buy articles on platforms like Coindesk. So as long as Do Kwan was buying articles, buying advertising, why would they out him? But the moment that they saw the project was crashing, they, they put two and two together and said, you know what, he's unlikely to be able to buy more marketing because, you know, that entire p project is now bankrupt. So might as well get the engagement from publishing that he's actually a serial scammer. It's possible. It's even possible there's no monetary. It's like sometimes for these uh, online outlets that have just a super high output ratio, they rely on their relationships with these coin creators to get information, to get the inside interview, to get the scoop. And so just keeping that relationship alive, they sort of compromise themselves. And this is one of my biggest concerns with click-driven journalism, if you could call it that, and YouTube journalism, is that the incentives do not align. But so Do Kwan, who was the founder, creator, whatever you want to call, of Terra Luna, turns out, tried this before, blew up, a lot of people lost money. He basically came up with a new name and a new idea, and that was what, that's where we got Terra Luna from. What I'm trying to get at is that Terra Luna, this combination of a stable coin and an altcoin, it ties up coins at every point. You stake it. You, you stake the Luna to get more Luna. You stake the Terra in Anchor to get more Terra. At every opportunity, it's tying up liquidity. It's tying up coins. And you're getting this non-market-based 20% return. Where is that return coming from? It's because the initial VCs and backers of the protocol, they got free coins, and then they took some of those free coins, and they subsidized these crazy returns to get people interested. Now, why would they do that? Why would they give up their free coins just to get retail interested in staking? The answer is it gave them a longer runway to dump their coins that they minted out of nowhere into real assets. And so this is, is it a Ponzi scheme? I don't know. It's certainly a scam because there's just no fundamental reason why any of these assets should have any value. The real red flag, I think, for all of us, though, where we went like, whoa, 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 what's going on here was when Do Kwan kind of broke this loop between UST and Luna and started buying Bitcoin as another reserve currency for it. And I think that's when it started getting a lot more kind of skeptical looks because it kind of branched out. And, uh, you know, I saw a lot of people in the Bitcoin community jump up and say, well, we should embrace this. This is great to see. And I think we could say in retrospect, it was clearly orange washing. Do Kwan was trying to legitimize his project by buying a lot of Bitcoin and saying, hey, look, I'm a Bitcoiner. And he's clearly not. He's created his own token. He has a predatory business model that involves scamming people and telling them lies to get them to buy his worthless token. But he was successful, at least temporarily. So he was able to buy, you know, a billion dollars of Bitcoin or something, like a huge amount. But what's interesting 
is that the crash of Terra Luna was actually executed because he bought this Bitcoin. So I've linked to an article which describes how essentially when Do Kwon started buying all of this Bitcoin, some entity, some big trader actually sold it to him. And so this, this entity borrowed billion dollars of Bitcoin. So we don't know who this is, but there's been some speculation that it might be um, Citadel, who was the bad guy in the whole GME Robin Hood story. And they bought this Bitcoin or borrowed it. They then sold it to Do Kwon as he was accumulating Bitcoin to back up UST. Hey, we're going to give you this price off exchange. It's a great price. You can't pass it up. And he couldn't. Yeah. And so they <laughs> accumulated a huge amount of UST. And then the way that the Luna ecosystem works is there are these pools where you can trade UST for other assets. And th they had three of these big pools, and then they were opening another pool called Frax, or maybe, they, maybe Frax is the platform, and then they called it the four pool, which was this new pool they were opening. And they executed this in a very sloppy way, where they essentially allowed the, I think, the third pool to get very low in volume as they were transitioning to the fourth pool. And the attacker who had bought all this UST just dumps it into the third pool. And, they, and so they kind of squeeze out all the liquidity and they crater the price. And they essentially create this massive short on Terra. And this starts the death spiral where Terra depegs from a dollar. And then they have to start this death spiral in Luna where you can basically mint Terras to get Lunas, but then the Luna supply increases, the Luna price crashes. And how does the attacker make money? Well, essentially, they crash the Bitcoin price because they force the Luna Foundation to sell all their Bitcoin. And so they manage to crash the Bitcoin price and then they can buy up cheap Bitcoin. Yeah, and this is entirely possible and legal because, well, this is an unregulated market and they can take these kinds of actions. They didn't they didn't force Do Kwan to sell off his Bitcoin. Well, they kind of did. But I mean, they didn't hold a gun to his head. He, he, made, that, he made that choice and they took advantage of the market conditions it created. <laughs> they just walked him right into it. Essentially, this creates a lot of contagion and panic in crypto markets because when a stable coin depegs, that's much more disruptive than Bitcoin losing half its value. Because stable assets like stable coins, because they're assumed to be stable, are often used as the foundation for collateral or for leverage. And so when this foundation of a financial pyramid gets shaken, the whole thing falls down. And so everything's selling off. There's a broad panic. And people are, I think, um, crypto skeptics, which would be us, right? We're crypto skeptic, aren't we? Very much. Yeah. But we're Bitcoin maximalists. But other skeptics are just loving this from the sidelines, just laughing at all the silliness in crypto land. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a sense that the regulators are watching and they're kind of rubbing their hands together going, <laughs> I can see there's some work that needs to be done here. We better get hiring. Um, and, you know, I, I think these sort of situations mint new Bitcoin maximalists. There are some people that look at this and just go, oh, crypto is such a joke. There's other people that look at this and go, oh, I've been wasting my money on all these altcoins. I just burned all that money. Every dollar I spent on Luna or every dollar I put into UST, I could have put into Bitcoin, right? Every dollar I've spent on Link, like Link is crashing today. Every dollar I spent on Link could have been spent on Bitcoin or, you know, insert name of, you know, random ApeCoin here. Um, and so I think this does mint new maximalists in this kind of situation. And I think it does create an environment that justifiably will bring in regulators as well towards stable coins. It's sort of like setting up the next 
big thing that crypto is going to be facing, perhaps. And additionally, and I wonder what you think, I don't think we're done with this yet. Like you said, a stable coin is used as collateral. It's, it's used to peg under like other deals, other things that have been set up. I feel like we're going to see the domino effect of this for probably several weeks because these things don't always happen immediately. Like the, the crash happens immediately, but then the knock-on effect can sometimes take the financial sector a couple of weeks to sort out, if that. I think that's a reasonable expectation. And what we want to emphasize is that Bitcoin is volatile. And that's actually a feature because what Bitcoin does is it ensures that the supply will always be fixed. We always know that there's a maximum of 21 million. We know how many Bitcoin exist at any moment. We know that there will, generally speaking, always be a block in about 10 minutes. And that's what Bitcoin guarantees. Very simple. What it can't guarantee is a price. The price is the result of the interaction with this immutable system, this juggernaut that just continues, that's Bitcoin, with the fiat world, which is just this amorphous mess where things change all the time, who knows what. And so at this moment, things changed and it drives the Bitcoin price down and then things will change and it'll probably drive it up again. So this doesn't really concern me or Chris. And I understand that if you've been swimming in these waters, you were swimming with sharks and sometimes they take a chunk out of you. Hopefully it wasn't too large a chunk and you can keep swimming and come over to the Bitcoin lifeboat because we're going to talk about what we do as Bitcoiners when panic hits the markets. These are the times where you realize, oh, right, this is an adversarial market. These things can happen. There are big players that could just move the entire market like this if they want to right now. And so that's why I think a lot of the standard things that you hear from Bitcoin maximalists are playing right. You know, I think you are you are seeing a lot of that advice that has been learned over years of watching this volatility. Um, this is not the first stablecoin that has collapsed, right? We have been through stablecoin collapses before, but a lot of people came on board in 2021. I think it was the largest growth in crypto users ever was 2021. Something like 70% of the accounts that signed up for exchanges were like the first time, first time crypto buyers or something like that. When it was a huge number. Allow me to list some stable coins that have failed. BitShares, NewBits, Steam, Corian, Alchemit, BitBay, Carbon, Basis. Basis was Doquan's first failed coin that wiped out $65 million of investor money. Haven, and then seniorage shares. So I don't think any of these still exist. The most successful stable coin that I know of is MakerDAO, which is a crypto collateralized. It's an over collateralized stable coin. And so it, it makes it not very attractive to people because, you know, if you have a million dollars of Bitcoin and you send it into MakerDAO somehow, you only get, you know, say $500,000 of stable coin. So it's not very efficient. Now, we could talk more about stable coins because. This is kind of a big topic, but maybe we should just leave those links there if people want to learn more, because I feel like people don't really care about stable coins when there's a crisis. They, they care about how do, I, how do I get whole? How do I protect myself? Mm-hmm. How do I not lose what I got? Okay. So that's coming in a moment. But first, I had to include this for Chris, a bit <laughs> of energy news. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because... You know how that gets me upset. Well, I really need the energy, so... Okay. Norway actually banned Bitcoin mining briefly, but that ban has been reversed. Okay, this seems like a positive thing so far. It is. I think it's generally positive. Mm -hmm. But I thought I would share a couple quotes from the article just to get Chris fired up. <laughs> okay. All okay. right. 
So what's really interesting is that the Bitcoin mining ban proposal, it actually came from the Norwegian Communist Party. The ban proposal. Okay. All right. I thought this was funny because I think a lot of Bitcoiners fall into the American trap of calling everyone they don't like communists. Right. Yeah. But this is actually an example of communists being against Bitcoin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it feels like communists should be for Bitcoin because it's something that empowers the people. Right. Well, this communist alliance was actually formed out of a workers party, a very communist party and also a green party. So I think maybe they had a uh, yeah. they drank from the, the green cup. There is a lot of ESG FUD out there. So here's their quote uh, when the when the sort of ban proposal was overturned. We are obviously disappointed with the majority here. In the future, we will electrify large parts of society. Hey, you probably should have done that already. If we do not want to carpet Norwegian nature with wind power, we must actually prioritize what the power is to be used for. Is this assuming they're only going to use wind power to power all of the homes and industry for the future? That's clearly not going to work. Yeah. I mean, wind power is just not that energy dense. So yeah. the, the yeah. joke, of course, <laughs> is that Norway is a very rich country very recently because they have massive oil and gas deposits. But Norway does this sort of ESG nimbyism where they, they dig up all this oil and gas and then they ship it elsewhere and then they use renewables at home. The ridiculous thing there is so they're rich in natural resources and they use the most inefficient methods to extract those and then ship them off. Whereas if they just capture them locally and use them locally, they could reduce the power cost and the energy cost to the people. Uh, that must be what they're doing, right? I must have this wrong, right? You've got it completely right. Because actually in Norway, and I'm, I'm quoting in the article here, I, I haven't looked this up independently, but it is crazy if it's true. Ordinary households, companies, and the public sector pay an electricity tax of $2.51 per kilowatt hour. That is outrageous. I'm just doing the math in my head. That's over 20 times as expensive as your standard electrical cost in Washington State. 20 times. That's, that's wild. That is crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, but, we're lucky. We're lucky. We have hydro. But there are some industries that have a reduced electricity tax of only seven cents per hour. Seven? Which is under what we pay in Washington State. So, so homes are paying... 20 times more. Almost three bucks a kilowatt hour, and industry is paying seven cents. I think certain politically connected industries... And then they're complaining about the cost of Bitcoin mining and how they need to electrify homes. Well, what are they going to do when everybody has an electric car? This is always where I go on this. This is so short-sighted. It's like they have the means to supply their people with clean power and they could do it more efficiently than they're doing it now. And instead what they do is they rely 100% on wind instead of having it be part of an overall mix, which would clearly be better and more sustainable. Instead of making it part of a, of a sustainable mix, they rely completely on the renewables, but they're still willing to drill the oil and ship the oil using diesel boats where it'll get sold on the world market to God knows who and God knows how they'll use it. And some of that oil is then turned into wind turbine blades because wind turbine blades actually are made out of like a mix of steel and some polymers that are oil byproducts. And then they're shipped back using diesel and then installed in Norway. So it's a, it's a pretty inefficient conversion from like, you know, your oil to wind turbines. It is silly when you really start to look at how backwards we've turned ourselves for these ESG goals. It, it doesn't seem like it's even getting close to accomplishing what the actual 
environmental goals should be. Like, it just, just seems. And the other thing that I've been wondering recently, and I, I wonder if it's going to happen here in the States too, with, with our energy costs just skyrocketing right now, is this going to p- create a popular pushback on these environmental movements, on renewables? 100%. I mean, look at what's happening in Texas, because Chris and I, we don't love carbon emissions, okay? It might sound like we do, but the point we're trying to make is that we want a clean environment. We're very worried about global warming. We live in a fire zone. Why is that? Because all of the Western United States is a fire zone. And part of that is land mismanagement. Part of that is global warming. I don't think you could grow up around here and live here or, or, you know, just, you know, move here and not want to protect the environment. It's so beautiful here. You have oceans and mountains. The point that we're making is that this idea that, oh, we'll just uh, install some solar panels, throw up a couple wind turbines. We're golden, baby. Get a, get a Tesla. We're golden. Not at all. That, that is like 1% of the way to solving the energy problem. Because the reality is, is there's just so much carbon in our energy mix. So much coal, oil, natural gas. It's the majority. Okay. And the only way that we can replace that cleanly is with a heck ton of nuclear, a heck ton. And look, we can have wind and solar around the edges and that'll be great. I mean, it's super good for like energy resiliency. I would love to have a house that was self-sufficient in terms of solar capacity. That'd be awesome. You know what I would do? I would have, I would overbuild solar and then I would have some Bitcoin miners, you know, because if it's my house, I got space, I can put them in a little shed. And then if I can't sell power back to the grid for a, a profit, I would just run the Bitcoin miners with power. And then if I need power from the panels because like the grid is down or something, I would just power my house and turn off the miners. And it's a perfectly reasonable way to help pay for the investment of solar panels and batteries and inverters and whatnot, because it can be a good chunk of change to do that to your home. Yeah. And I mean, hey, if I could get a wind turbine too, and it wasn't going to like, you know, run havoc with the local birds or something, I would do that as well. I think the part that you and I find frustration with, if you were really to boil down all of this Norwegian ban on mining and then the reversal of it, the frustrating thing of it is, even if Bitcoin mining was never entered the picture, we just want electric heat and electric cars. We have to find a way to generate that power and nuclear is it. And so it's frustrating that you got a solution out there that is being ignored, even though there's downsides, we need, we need to get working on those downsides, right? And it's frustrating that the general idea is when it comes to these complaints about energy, the underlying logic is expansion is bad. Anything that uses more power, bad. Even if I don't understand the value of it, I don't understand what it's doing. It's using more power, so therefore it's bad. What that is, is that is limiting human potential, right? Not only do we have a solution out there that we've known how to take advantage of for a long time. Nuclear power. But you're also proposing something that is essentially anti-growth. It is anti-expansion, which is just not our nature. It's frustrating because it means that the central planner who gets to decide how everyone uses energy, they have to be omniscient. They have to understand the intricacies of Bitcoin energy usage and production that took Chris and I in the Bitcoin industry a decade to learn. And they have to know that. But then they also have to know about every other industrial process, every other use of energy. And every new one that just comes up. And obviously, no human can be that, that much of a generalist, but also specialized. So what ends up happening is that the people who make these decisions, they make the decisions based on who's putting political pressure on them. And that's how we get really bad outcomes. The traditional market dynamics actually can work here. And I am not like a, everything should just be a market, you know, let's just go crazy. But there is just 
empirical data here that shows us that when you let the market work, when you let the energy market work, there's there's natural demands and balances. It, it It's actually a perfectly functional system. But I'm glad to see this ban has been reversed. I guess that's a good step, right? Yeah, I think so. I just wonder if Norway is going to pursue these crazy energy taxes. They seem really punitive. We may be entering into a period of time where they have to back off on this kind of stuff. It really depends on how long this downturn ha- remains and, you know, where this war in Ukraine goes and energy prices. It's, uh, we may see some of these things change. Mm, agreed which is a good time for an ad read. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. We've been talking a lot about energy. Did you know that there are many self-hosted options to monitor your home electricity usage? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Home Assistant, in the last few updates, has built in more and more energy monitoring. You know, with my Home Assistant system that I've talked about on self-hosted, I'm always monitoring the energy draw of things like my Starlink and my heaters and uh, my cooling systems in my RV all the time. And I get historical data of the energy draw of all of those devices inside Home Assistant with charts and what. Gosh. Sounds like you're using technology to learn more about your energy usage, and that might even have positive downstream impacts on the environment. Who knows? Who knows? Check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app. Okay, so we are at Boosts. Now we're doing something a little different this week because Chris will be joining. Yeah. Now oh, they're yeah. going about, in reverse. How about order. I take the first one? Should we start from the bottom? Okay. Boy, this is a lot of boost. This is great. Um, of course I don't know how to read. Oh yeah, Cardnerd. There we go. Cardnerd writes in with two thousand sats six days ago on episode thirteen, which was the interview with Capitalist Dog. I, I cannot agree more about stablecoin. I perm- I don't remember what your stablecoin point was then. Capitalist Dog thinks stablecoins are a total distraction and waste of time. He sees them as the vehicle of fiat corruption. So why do we want to corrupt our pristine Bitcoin ecosystem with this fiat trash? Hmm. Uh, he says, I'm primarily in the Cardano, Ergo, and Bitcoin ecosystems, but introducing the but introducing the base unit of a failed financial system into the protocol is a mistake. It breaks decentralization and the on and off ramps become the targets of government and malicious actors. The only way to keep the ideals and vision of the original Bitcoin white paper is to create the circular economy. Love the show. Thanks for all you do. Love and sats. Yeah, love and sats. I was trying to make sure I got the name right. Card nerd. It's card nerd, right? Yeah. Well, we or no, card nerd. Card nerd. That's what it is. I knew I was getting that wrong. We had, we had speculated about this name before because when I first saw card nerd, I thought, oh, I wonder if Cardano? he's into Cardano. And confirmed. Our next boost is from the crypto coach BTC, um, who was listening to You Can't Spell Stagflation Without AG. That was actually a mistype because I forgot briefly that AU is gold and AG is silver, but I hadn't mentioned silver in the episode. So I changed the title to You Can't Spell Stagflation Without Oil and Gas, which are inside stagflation if you hunt around. <laughs> There's an O-I-L in there. Read chapters. For me, less is more. Love the show. We did ask, do people like more chapters or less? Crypto Coach BTC likes less chapters. Uh, I love this next one from uh, Crypto Kyle, sent in 500 sats, uh, also for the same episode, and just said quite, uh, quite simply, I would listen to Ban, the Bitcoin Action News. <laughs> I love that name. 
So is, is that is that the amount of interest? Is that all we need? Do we start ban the Bitcoin? I don't. know. Would you actually call it that? Uh, I don't know. I've been wondering, like a Bitcoin news show. What would you call that? There's the problem is there are several already out there. So what do you got? You got to bring something, you know, that they're not bringing. Got to find a unique angle on the thing. But I I feel like if it's a Bitcoin network and say if you have ban Bitcoin action news and it's just doing you know daily news show or weekly news show, but then you have some play on Bitcoin development news or maybe Bitcoin mailing list BML, then you could have or BIP BIP. <laughs> you call it, just call this the call Bitcoin it. improvement proposal show. Yeah, BIP BIPS <laughs> the BIPS show. So we, we're giving away all our best ideas on air. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Crypto Kyle's gonna rip off our. Yeah, you, podcast you know what, Crypto idea. Kyle, you come work with us. Send yeah. me in a demo reel. Maybe yeah. we'll hire you to do ban. Anyone who's thinking about ripping off these ideas right now, just send in a boost and we'll work with you. Yeah, let's, let's build it together. Okay, and then our next boost is from Castomatic. So, oh, no, this is, I think this is from Bullish on Sats. Okay, who was listening to episode 14, Can't Spell Stagflation Without Oil and Gas. I'm actually proud of that title. My Crypto Dad moment came yesterday. My son got $100 cash from various family members, and he gave me a $20 bill for an in-app purchase on an iPhone game, with me giving him change to his Lightning wallet, which is self-hosted on my umbrella. Nice. Later on, he wanted to give me the rest of his cash to put in his Lightning wallet. Oh, that's so great. Wow, that's cool. I love that moment where they're like, I don't want this cash. Can you give it to me in Bitcoin, Dad? Send yeah. it to me in Lightning. The, uh, the dad bank. I got, I got to figure out what to do like with the small numbers because Dylan had two bucks left over from something he bought and he wanted me to put the $2 into Bitcoin. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just like next time I buy myself some, I'll give him two bucks. I'm, like, I'm trying to figure out like how I'm going to do these small, small dollar amounts. If anybody out there knows, send this a boost and tell me how I can do this with my kid. Because I want him, I love the idea of him like, you know, I, hey dad, I got a couple extra bucks. Let's put it in Bitcoin. But doesn't really work that smoothly for me. Yeah, Bank of Dad. <laughs> One option is to run like a Coin OS server. So Coin OS is a custodial Bitcoin wallet. So if you ran a Coin OS instance, then you could maintain wallets for all your family members. And uh, I think it also has like liquid and some other stuff in there, maybe if you enable it. Um, it doesn't solve the fiat to crypto conversion, but it might be a more unified management interface. Hmm. Okay. Okay. All right. I like that. All right. Uh, I'm on the next one here. Uh, Sir Lurks a Lot, who uh, I love that name. I think has one of the best names. Uh, also uh, was boosting in for Can't Spell Stagflation Without Oil and Gas. And he says, another great show. Boy, weren't you guys prescient with the regards to the downturn in Terra and Luna? Woo! So much excitement. I think I must have drunk the Kool-Aid somewhere along the way because Bitcoin's drop is making me cheer inside in an ironic way. I think I'm going to BTFD, in other words, buy that dip, buy that effing dip. P.S. I just love both the economics and the technical breakdowns. You guys rocks. Uh, and every show is a T-I-L, Today I Learned moment, and I heartily thank you. Wow, thanks so much. That's such a nice message. I love, love, love that Lurks a Lot is enjoying the dip right now. Like, if we can help people get to that headspace and help them understand that this is a great opportunity, I think the show is doing good for people out there. Oh, definitely. That was the goal. I mean... Once you drink the Kool-Aid, you fall to the bottom of the rabbit hole. When Bitcoin pumps, you actually feel your heart sinking because you're like, oh, maybe that was the amount of Bitcoin that I get. Right. We think that there will be a day when the Bitcoin price runs away and, you know, you're basically going to be at like US dollar cent Satoshi parity. And so all the Bitcoin we bought now was all we got. 
And then once Bitcoin gets to a certain market cap, now we have to share Bitcoin with the rest of the world. So, you know, in our model, we're kind of like front running the world here. Right. When it falls, temporarily at least, we're like, yay, I get to have more. And then as the bear market wears on, we're like, oh, man, I'm feeling pretty poor. You Maybe know? this is never going to go Maybe up. it's never going to go. <laughs> yeah. And once all hope is lost. Then it just shoots up again. <laughs> That's always how it goes. And we got a boost from Turquoise Fox from Breeze. Again, episode 14. 100% check out Bitcoin Optech. It's a newsletter that focuses on development on Bitcoin Core, Lightning, BIPs, and more. Highly recommend. Hey, thanks so much. I actually read Bitcoin Optech, but I guess some, some weeks I don't mention it because I don't necessarily understand everything I read in there. It's very technical, but it would be a good... I mean, I think there's definitely a show in going through Bitcoin Optech because there's also mm. drama. Okay. Yeah. All there's, right. There's like developers. I'll have to start reading it then. I'll have to start reading each it. other. Lurks a lot. Boosts in again. After listening to Seth, this was for a different episode. After listening to Seth explain how signal centralization is an exception to the rule because of privacy, respect, and design and open source uh, verifiability, um, and how there are some benefits to be had, I'm kind of reminded of Bitwarden, the password manager. It has a related project and secret storage that are part of a privacy and security story. I'd be interested to either to hear either of you or Seth's take on Bitwarden, including the fact that you could opt to self-host the server, but not with Signal. Yeah, I do appreciate that about Bitwarden, is they offer that self-hosting option, Vault Warden, and um, another, boy, boy, this should have a drinking game every time I mention Umbral, but... Umbral has a one-click install for Vault Warden, which I think is great. We would be completely drunk halfway through every episode. Bitwarden is my password manager of choice, although I suppose I should disclaim they are a sponsor for Linux Unplugged, bitwarden.com slash Linux. But I've used them for years before they were sponsored too. Yeah, I'd like to use Bitwarden because I currently use KeePass XC, yeah. which is a super solid open source choice. But Bitwarden can do cool stuff where you can use a YubiKey like a hardware token to authenticate. And I'd like to incorporate that into my setup. And I KeePass isn't there yet. Bitwarden can also grab your two-factor token. So when you go to log into a website, you can have it generate the two-factor codes for you. Oh, my God. That's very nice. Do you Have you ever tried, like, importing a KeePass database into Bitwarden? Hmm. No, I have done a LastPass database, but I don't think I've ever done a KeePass database. I mean, I it must be a feature, I imagine. Probably, or there's probably a script for it. There's a pretty big community. Um, We've never said this on the show, but you have to be using separate passwords for any crypto websites, all websites, really. But every every exchange, anywhere you go that has anything to do with crypto at all, you must be using different passwords and ideally even different users at all of these websites. That's another huge part of security. Yeah. And in terms of different usernames, because most services want you to use your email address as a username, I would suggest Simple Login. So there's a website, simplelogin.io. And this is another project that you can self-host, though it's a bit complicated because it ties into email. Or you can just pay a very reasonable amount for their yearly service. And this is like a mask in front of your email. And so with Simple Login, you get a browser extension that you can just click on and it generates a new email address. And all of these email addresses, they reflect back to your whatever email address you give them. So you could use a Proton mail address, you could use even a Gmail, whatever. And this means that the sites you're signing up with only get one email address. And so this means that in data breaches, it's harder to tie your information together because all of your email addresses are different. They don't match when they try to join everything together to tie together multiple data breaches. So it gives you a lot more privacy and security, I think. And 
you get a little idea who's selling your info to people. When you start getting spammed to just that one email address you only gave to that one company, you got them. <laughs> yeah, you know who's a crappy custodian of your personal information. Oh, it's me next. Our next boost is from a guy named Ryan. Hey, Ryan. And he was listening to the episode 14. How the heck did Chris just very casually buy YAF Raspberry Pi? I can't find them anywhere. They were available for a hot minute before we recorded last week. And I got a I got a link from my buddy Alex that I can't remember the website now, but it's one of the common ones. And he and I have been watching because we've probably put off like half a dozen projects. <laughs> so so we both bought one when it became available. I haven't received it yet, though. What is a YAF? It's called the compute module. So I don't know. That's not like abbreviation. Perhaps this is us being old dad. Could be one of the hip terms that kids use. Yeah. I'm nervous about that F because this is a family-friendly podcast. F. <laughs> yeah. We don't even use that other word for altcoins, though I, I think it still. It's just it sounds so. Yeah. I'm going to say this guy's name is True Grits. I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce this username. Oh, I'm definitely True Grits. Yeah. Okay. Boosting in for the interview with Seth for privacy, True Grits writes, I don't really have anything to ask or add besides I just hope to see Seth back in the future. Also, would love to see him on Unplugged someday. Well, that's not a bad idea. Thanks, True Grits. I think we should get Seth on the podcasting network because mm. he could do like the privacy show. I would be down for a privacy show. Yeah. Definitely down for a privacy show. Because then there could be so much overlap. He'd show up on the self-hosted show. It would be good. Oh, and we got... Second one from True Grits, it looks like. Oh, it looks like he boosted twice. Double boost. Pew, pew, pew. Yeah. He's our double booster of the week. Yes. So he says, he and Chris, he's talking about Seth. Seth and Chris got me so interested in crypto. Chris with Bitcoin Lightning, Seth with Monero. I am a Monero miner. Oh, that's so cool. So True Grits, what I'd like to ask you is, are you just mining Monero on an old laptop? Because I've heard that the AMD Epic series are very efficient for mining Monero. And those are pretty expensive processors, right? Like they have, they're, they're hyper-threaded or something. I could see also, I hope, True Grits will have to tell us, but I could see maybe he's one of those Raspberry Pi miners. You know, they're out there. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Monero miners out there mining away on a Raspberry Pi. Gosh, that's, uh, that's wild. I, I mean, have at it. I, I suppose it's kind of like buying a cheap used ASIC and throwing it at Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> I've done a little bit of research on the Monero mining algorithm. Mm. It's called Random X, and it's basically a mining algorithm that sort of uses a lot of random bits like memory and general compute and stuff. And this is designed to make it difficult to accommodate on a GPU or an FPGA or right. an ASIC. So the idea is to basically make the mining algorithm complicated enough that a general purpose CPU is the ideal platform to mine on. That's my understanding. And I kind of see this as a benefit and a risk. Because on the one hand, it's a benefit because now we can all mine at home. We don't need specialized equipment. But it's a risk because now we can attack the network with AWS. We don't need specialized equipment. So I wonder if anyone's done the math on that, you know, how that shakes out. Because it seems like they're, they're betting on minor decentralization being more security enhancing than minor investment in specialty hardware. Yeah, which is, I can see that being risky since that, that hardware is on demand. You know, you spend $5,000 for a day and you can get an unbelievable amount of compute power and you only have to do it for, you know, one day. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, maybe it's fine. There are not as many Monero nodes as I would like to see. That's the other fact. I th wasn't it something like under 3,000 Monero nodes last time we checked? I don't recall. 
But Does it was, a bell? it's a fraction of the Bitcoin mm-hmm. node count. Marcel writes in with our last boost with one, two, three, four sats 23 hours ago, responding to the Bitcoin dad pod and Wyoming is for stable coins only episode. Isn't that, uh, wasn't that one of our first episodes? It's like really early. Yeah. I said, but the, how great is this? Marcel says, I got some Bitcoin to boost and I'm just now realizing that sats are the true unit of Bitcoin. I bought into the misconceptions as well. I thought sats were their own thing for use with the Lightning Network or something. How did they how did they see the need for such a teeny tiny unit when one BTC was one cent back in the day? What happens if the price keeps going up and one sat is worth what one Bitcoin is worth today? Wow. <laughs> that would be pretty wild. That that would be that would be hyperinflation. So if that were the case, my next question would be, what does a bottle of water cost? Jeez, really? A million dollars. I really think there is going to be, and maybe it's maybe it's another generation or two down the road. I don't know. But I really think there will be a point when society refers to Bitcoin in sats and not in Bitcoin, in one Bitcoin, in one BTC. Account. I think we're close to that. You think so? Yeah. Oh, it just feels like, but also at the same time, we've just ingrained this unit of account that we have now in. It's, you know, we look at it, oh, it's $29,000 for a Bitcoin. I think that when Bitcoin breaches some number, I don't know if it's $100,000 or $200,000, I think it's going to be like a phase change where, you know, we're liquid at this point and then suddenly it becomes like gas in the sense that Bitcoin has been grinding higher for 10 years. But there is a moment when Bitcoin gets big enough for the big money in the world to say, oh, it's big enough. Now I can invest in that. So we think of investors as people who buy low, sell high. But because of the twisted incentives of the fiat world, the real money in the world is buy high. Buy high, never sell. Or buy high, sell higher. And so there's a point where Bitcoin becomes large enough to accommodate the sovereigns, to accommodate the energy markets, to accommodate the pension funds. And at that point, Bitcoin doesn't, Bitcoin isn't at a peak. It's at the bottom of the next phase change. And so I, I think we're close to that. I think we're within a cycle of that transition. And at that point, if, say, Bitcoin is worth six digits or seven digits or something like that, I think that Satoshis might make more sense. Or maybe a, a smaller unit, like you know, 10,000 Bitcoin or 100,000 Bitcoin or something Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. A million sats. Right. Million we start, yeah, we start bunching sats. Yeah. So I wonder about that. But how did Satoshi know to build this in? I mean, it's super weird. When you learn more about Satoshi and you read about what Satoshi's written, Satoshi was a really odd and prescient person. It's startling how brilliant some of the design is. You look at it, you go, how can one person have been so smart? And it's the thing that makes me go, Satoshi might have been a group of people. But then would a group of people create something so elegant? No, I I just don't think Satoshi was a group of people because, first of all, Satoshi's code is not the code of a software developer. And so if there was a group of people, I would expect at least one developer in there. You know, the original Bitcoin client that was also a mining node, that was also a wallet, that was released not on GitHub, but on... um, SourceForge. SourceForge. Oh my gosh, SourceForge. Wow. Uh, You know that there was also a poker game built in? (laughs) No, I'm not kidding. Satoshi had been like designing an online poker game and it was like in the original code. Oh, that's so great. And it also, I mean, I never looked at it, but I have... I have been told that the original code was pretty poor and that a lot of it had to be completely rewritten. Yeah, there were a lot of bugs in it. I mean, there were inflation bugs that had to be fixed. Yeah, um, it is truly, I guess, prescient is one way to put it. It is the man or woman 
or group of people, but probably not, uh, had incredible insights into human behavior, into how human incentives work, in into monetary policy, and also into the monetary policy that was currently unfolding in the global stage, which led to the inspiration for creating Bitcoin in the first place. And also had the best online private security OPSEC of anyone ever. No one's been able to figure out who Satoshi is. I even tried. I don't know if I told you this, but I did some timing analysis of the timestamps on Satoshi's forum posts and email responses. And I kind of, I mean, it's obviously pretty rough, but I think I identified his time zone. Was it Japan? No, it's Pacific uh, mm. EST. Really? Yeah. Right on. I think it's PST. Yeah, probably <laughs> I love that. In... Let's go with that. I love that. Yeah, I mean, which, you know, maybe maybe Satoshi lived was like a Silicon Valley or maybe professor. Who knows? But so also I, I refer to Satoshi as he because Satoshi referred to himself that way. Just all of it. And then the final master stroke to just disappear um, and never touch that one million initial Bitcoin in that original Satoshi wallet. Oh, my God. Wow. The, the true genius of that, it is, a, it, is a, it is a gift. And to have the deep understanding of human psychology, to understand why that is so critical and why now that makes Bitcoin one of the most unique cryptocurrencies ever because there is no founder, it's so critical. It's so important. This is the immaculate conception. And so this is when Bitcoiners start sounding religious and crazy. But let's just think about that. Someone comes out of nowhere. They create the most valuable, best performing asset the world has ever seen. Just as the world desperately needs it. And then they do not even cash out one penny and then they disappear. They never ask for credit. They, they just provide this to the world and then go just as they feel like they might be becoming a bottleneck to the success of it. I mean, can you imagine Justin Sun doing that? Can you imagine Do Kwan? I think Vitalik, you know, he, he gets a pass compared to all of the horrible founders we compare him to. But I mean, he's nothing on Satoshi. He stuck around for the accolades. He does love them, too. When you see him go to events. Yeah, he preens a little. He does. And that's just human nature. I would probably, too, if I had created Ethereum and I was getting all the attention he does. So what Satoshi did was create something that was truly unique that can never really be created again, because anything that's created after Bitcoin will, was inspired by Bitcoin and will be started by a person or a group. Yeah. And that's a, this is one of the things that I find hilarious in that a lot of, quote unquote, smart people get this completely backwards. because. I know people who were aware of Bitcoin, like within months of it being created, who just ridiculed it and who said, oh, it's an interesting idea, but the real thing is blockchain. Bang, wrong. Blockchains existed since the 1970s. And they have maintained that Bitcoin's an interesting idea, but everyone who thinks Bitcoin is going to succeed is completely crazy. And what's really going to happen is insert thing here, like central bank digital currency, which is like the opposite of Bitcoin. It's cosplaying as Bitcoin, but actually it's super fiat. Or there's going to be another project that usurps Bitcoin because it's more efficient. It has more throughput. I mean, look at all the projects that have done that. They're absolute disasters, you know. And so it's hilarious how Bitcoin almost succeeded by looking silly, by, by being weird. By being simple. Yeah, it is relatively simple compared to all the other things that are being done. And that doesn't mean it's simple. If we look into the code and we look into the, the ways that Bitcoin developers are hardening Bitcoin from attack and making it more efficient and better over time, yeah. I mean, this is big brain, moon math level stuff that they're right. doing. Super simple, impressive. Simple, perhaps the wrong descriptor, maybe uh, staying focused. Maybe it is simple, but simple doesn't mean easy. 
Mm -hmm. It's like the incentives are simple. It's designed and built to be the best money ever created. That's his primary job. And we would argue that it does it really well. Yeah. Right now at this stage, it can't control for volatility. Volatility is the fiat world brushing up against Bitcoin. It's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is very stable. It always works. Blocks keep on coming. The emission schedule of Bitcoin has never been interrupted. So you can rely on Bitcoin for those things. If you need to rely on Bitcoin as a store of value, I think that comes in the future. You know, I think that requires a little, if not faith, but a little bit of forward something, a little bit of analysis. It'll come with time as people observe all of these different digital assets and realize that not all digital assets are created the same. It'll take time as people get educated about it and become more informed about what it is they're investing in. It'll take time as regulation opens up standard pathways for Wall Street to come in and invest in a way that they feel is safe. And all of these things will come together and it'll take time, but we'll get there. It's, I feel more confident about that than ever, even in the middle of a crash. You know, having watched how far Bitcoin has come in 13 years, uh, it has a real sense of inevitability now. And it's needed more now than ever. It's, if we didn't have Bitcoin right now, somebody would need to be invented. I think that's a great place to end. This has been the Bitcoin Dan Pod, recorded on Friday, May 13th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here as always. With Chris. With Chris. That was me. Sorry, I, I normally do the with. I don't mind. See you next time.